you would, open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2, and we will start in verse 6. Let me pray. We have a lot of ground to cover today, and we'll get right to it. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to consider your word. I ask that each of us would have a deep reverence for your word. This is the word of the Lord. And I ask that we would tremble before your word. Give us clear insight into what your servant Habakkuk says, so that we may live accordingly and adjust our steps according to what you have instructed us. Please do so for your namesake. Amen. So if you're following along with the handout or the list of different verses and the headings thereof, you see that the first section here, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, I have titled, Five Woes Against God's Instrument. Five Woes Against God's Instrument. And I want to note right now that this is, in fact, the Lord's posture. If you were arriving to this text on its own, if someone just assigned this to you as the reading for the day, you would not see this as in any way very different from much of the rest of the Old Testament or much of the rest of what the New Testament says regarding God's posture or God's judgment of the wicked. In fact, it's right in line with that. As we read these five woes, many other passages of Scripture will probably resonate in your mind as reminders that the Lord says the same thing. There's no breaking of character for God when it comes to speaking about the great and awesome day of the Lord and what will happen to those who are unrepentant, to those that are not found in Christ. And just before we get into it, might I say to you, friend, that if you do not know Jesus Christ as the only one to shield you from the wrath of God, then these five woes are for you as well. So we need to have a sense of holy dread and to take this time seriously because we're hearing what God says to all creation. Not just some tyrannical kingdom in the past like Babylon, but everyone as he warns the whole creation as what to what is going to happen on the great and last day. However, this text is very different than what you might find in other places in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is five woes against God's instrument. When we encounter other pronouncements of woe or or calamity against the wicked or prophetic utterances regarding the last and final day of judgment... It just makes sense, all right? You're unrepentant. You're a wicked person. You didn't trust in Jesus. You said, no thanks. So obviously, this is your fate. But this person, this entity, whoever it is that is, that is receiving this pronouncement, is identified as God's instrument. This is, in fact, God's response to Habakkuk's complaint. If you've been paying attention to Habakkuk so far, then you know that Babylon is God's instrument for divine judgment. And these five woes are against the very country, the very nation, the very people group that God has raised up. So the prophet essentially says, the people of Israel are wicked, Lord. 
The Lord responds, yes, I know, it's worse than you think. But don't worry, I'm raising up the, Babylon, the Babylonian empire to purify and discipline my people. And the prophet responds, but how can you do that, Lord? They're more wicked than we are. And the Lord's response is essentially, yeah, I know that. Trust in me in the meantime, and I will punish them too. That's simply astounding. And if you can't grasp that, that flow of the narrative, just listen to the first two sermons because it's so key to understand what these texts are and why they're here. What the Lord says won't make sense, much sense or, or strike you as glorious or as particularly revolutionary if you don't know the flow. So the first section here is what I've titled, Woe to the Greedy, verses 6 through 8. I'll read them. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtor suddenly rise? And those who awake, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoil for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. The Lord begins by saying that a people group or an entity or some, some group of individuals will take up scoffing and riddles against him or, or Babylon or, or the ruler of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. The identity is, is a little bit in question. It could be all creation. All creation will eventually cry out and, and deride and scoff against this wicked one that God has raised up as a means of judgment. It could be all other nations. It could be those that he, this man of lawlessness, has oppressed. Whoever has been oppressed by him will eventually come to ridicule him one day. I think it's likely it could be foreshadowing a day of judgment when all the people of God will stand and agree with God's judgment of the wicked, of all his enemies, especially the enemy himself. This is what Isaiah says in 1416, and it, it is talking about a tyrant during Isaiah's time, but people have taken it for centuries to refer to a final judgment against God's final enemy. Everyone will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made kingdoms of the world tremble? Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Notice, as we've said before, that God is reminding the prophet that he himself shares the perspective of how long. He's the one crying out how long. He's been saying it longest. And he understands and knows that perspective more than any of us. We need to discuss this word, woe. It's not W-O-A-H, it's W-O-E. We don't use that sense of woe very much at all. But it's a very important biblical word. In Hebrew, it's also, it, it, it sounds like what it means. It's automatopoeic. It's similar to the English word whale. Not a whale is in the water, but wailing. Right? It, when you say, I am a person wailed, you're kind of making the sound that maybe they would make in some sense. Here's my definition of woe. It's the condition of utter hopelessness and crying out in pain and misery as a result of catastrophe. 
Jesus, I think, underscores this idea of woe using vivid terminology. He says, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. If you, ever known, if you have ever known sorrow or loss or pain so bad that all you could do was clench your teeth to just keep barely any composure, then you know what woe is. And God says, woe to him, meaning that the Lord is the one who is going to ensure that this person, this entity, his divine instrument will come to the condition of woe. His sin, in this section at least, is taking what is not his and going into debt to increase his comfort in living. His mantra may be, it's just business. He's just trying to get ahead. He's trying to have the perfect lifestyle and not caring who is hurt in order to get it. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake, and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. There is nothing cruel or unusual about God's punishment and judgment. The Lord causes the punishment to fit the crime. Aha, essentially. Aha, you who would accumulate unjustly and oppress and go into debt in order to increase your own luxury. Your debtors and your creditors will come to collect. Your line of credit will reach its end. And your pyramid scheme of accumulating wealth for yourself will come tumbling down and they will all come for blood and feast off of you. That's the woe that the Lord pronounces. Verse 8, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. This is as Paul says, he will render to each person according to his works. There is is some sense of divine symmetry between the sin of an unrepentant sinner and the punishment that sinner will receive. If you think about it, even the garden variety sinner, not a tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, maybe not immoral to the level of a Casanova, but you're just not submitting to the will of God in your life. You're not wanting God to have much at all to do with you. You will get your wish and the desire of your heart. If that's what you really want, your punishment will fit the crime. This is the judgment from God who pers- for all who persist in unrepentant greed. The very things that you have sought to amass for yourself to satisfy your pleasures will turn and consume you to satisfy themselves. The rust and rot of your possessions that you set your hope upon will spread to your very own soul and consume you. Verses 9 through 11, we see, Woe to the arrogant. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. And I've turned this aspect uh, of his sin as arrogance, and it's applied to the general group of the arrogant, even though I think there's clear overlap between the five woes. So why arrogant? Why why is this the arrogant? Look at it closely. They are greedy, not for the sake of greed. They're not getting evil gain for the sake of pleasure alone. They do it, or he does it, to set his nest on high. 
What matters to him or any who sin in this way is their own safety and security. They trample on the helpless and needy in order to secure their own safety and to be beyond the reach of harm. People in a panic do this. You only need to recall to your mind things that happened last year when we had all sorts of panic buying and videos began circulating of how people treated each other when they wanted to set their nest on high to be out of the reach of harm and how we bludgeoned and trampled other people in order to make it happen. The error is manifold, but here are two aspects of the error. It is the arrogance of self-centeredness. As long as me and my family are safe, self-centeredness. It's also, secondly, the arrogance of assuming you can escape the reach of harm. If I can just fill in the blank, if I can just buy enough of these, if I can just get these skills, if I can just purchase the right house in the right place, if I can just organize my life in such a way, then I will be out of the reach of harm. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. Again, we see here that the pattern of the calamity or the woe that the Lord himself will bring to pass against those who persist in the sin of arrogance is fitting to the crime. You cut off others and trampled them underfoot to ensure your own safety? Well then, your life will be trampled underfoot. You will be cut off from the land of the living. You trusted in your own security and life, so it will fail you and you will die. The very act of planning for the safety of your own household at the expense of others or with no regard for others, that very planning and scheming will be the basis upon which the Lord shames you by utterly destroying your little castle of safety. Verse 11, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The very castle you built for yourself, what you worked so hard to build to protect yourself from the outside world as you took no care for the downtrodden and the oppressed will call out for your death. Away with him, away with him. This is the judgment of God for those who persist in the sin of arrogant self-centeredness and self-reliance. All of your efforts that you undertook in your self-centeredness and in your self-reliance will be evidence against you on the final day. The righteous will live by faith in God. You trusted in things other than God for your safety, and that very act is the signing of your death warrant. Because the righteous will live by faith in the Lord. The third, woe. Woe to the violent. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city with iniquity. Without exception, every nation that exists is founded on violence. We are no exception in this nation. Even if some of the wars that were fought were just, the hearts of those taking the cities were corrupt. God himself commanded that the people of Israel would cross the Jordan and take Jericho. And yet even in that just war, divinely 
inspired and divinely commissioned, there is Achan taking for himself treasure into his own tent. Even when I do good, sin lies close at hand. This is true of every nation. From the first city ever built, to Babel, to Damascus, to Ur, to Sodom and Gomorrah, and yes, even Jerusalem and Samaria, to Nineveh, to Babylon itself, to Susa, to Carthage, to Rome, and every city since then, blood and violence and iniquity are the lifeblood of the development of human culture. And it's sin to presume that we're any different here in this city of excellence. Verse 13, behold, it is not, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Honestly, this is not what I would expect the Lord to say here. The point is, it's from the Lord. It is the Lord's pronouncement of judgment. This is the woe that as you scramble about trying to build your cities and reach heaven, God makes you labor for nothing and labor for fire. You're essentially just getting ready for the day of judgment when it's all going to be burned up. This is the futility from the curse. Any human project undertaken is an echo of the futility of Babylon and Babel. And it proves again and again what Solomon already figured out. Do you realize how much effort and striving even by Christians and culture and politics is directly contrary to the spirit-inspired findings of Solomon? We think that we can escape the futility We think we're so clever. It is vanity and a striving after the wind. And the Lord has made it so. The Lord ensures that the entire human endeavor to make a name for ourselves on the earth will amount to nothing on Judgment Day. It does not matter how good your works are, nor how big of a legacy you build, or how strong of a nation or culture you leave for, the, for your children. If it is not from faith, if it is not for Christ, if it is not to build His kingdom primarily through your love for brother and sister, then it's laboring for fire and striving for nothing, just like the Gentiles do. Verse 14, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Why does all the ingenuity and statecraft and striving and protectionism and nationalism all boil down to laboring for fire and weariness for nothing? Because one day, brothers and sisters, one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there is nothing on this planet, no nation, no person, no company, no culture, no language, no name that is pure enough to exist in that world. And I wish I had time to demonstrate that to you. I took out so many notes to size this down and it's still eight pages. 
That which is good and worthwhile in human culture is that which helps people consider these things and live in accordance with it. This is how Solomon says it. This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Your confidence in this world and the nations thereof is only owing to the fact that you either do not see how corrupt and ubiquitous sin is in our world, or you simply can't fathom the holiness of the age to come. You can't see the sheer magnitude of an earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Only the body of Christ will survive. And even we ourselves will have to be radically changed in order to be worthy to enter that land. This is the judgment of God for all who persist in violence and iniquity to build their towns and cities and nations for their own security. It will all amount to nothing. And the Lord himself will consume it all with the fire to clear the way for the fullness of the knowledge of his glory. Verse 15, woe to the immoral. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drink in order to gaze at their nakedness. This should be taken, I think, on a national scale. If you remember the story of Joseph, the way he blames his brothers. You have come to spy out the nakedness of the land. So it it may not be referring to a literal nakedness here, though I think it's possible. The pouring out of wrath, the, the sentence that Babylon itself is doing so sadistically. It's perverted and maybe even a sexual pleasure in bringing other nations to ruin by means of their own violence and wrath. It could also be understood on a personal level for Nebuchadnezzar himself. Perhaps he took a deviant pleasure in his conquest as he rode his proud horse through the devastation of the land. It made him happy. Verse 16, you have filled, you have had your fill of, you will have your fill of shame, I'm sorry, instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and the utter shame will come upon your glory. This is a pronouncement of judgment, not an endorsement of behavior. It's like, Jesus says in the Revelation to John, chapter 22, verse 11, let the evildoer still do evil. And let the filthy be filthy still, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. The punishment and blessing is exactly this. You will, be, you will invariably become more of what you are. You will become more of what you are. And this is what God's woe against Babylon and against all who persist in the sin of immorality is, that you will become more of what you are. For the immoral, they've gotten all of their fill of pleasure and glory in life by means of being immoral. But all of that is building up a tab of debt that gets cashed in in a repayment of unending shame. Instead of exposing the nakedness of others with, national or po- with a nationalized or personalized voyeurism, all they will have to look at for eternity 
is the impurity and uncleanliness of their own selves. And it will be an ever-compounding weight of shame. Dear friend, this alone is reason enough to flee to Christ for safety. You can think of whatever you want about hell, just this idea of shame ever-increasing. Think of the time when you felt the most shame you ever have in your life. And God's pronouncement of judgment against the immoral is that all the glory and pleasure that you've got will just compound into an ever-increasing mountain of shame for you, and your soul will be crushed under the weight of that shame. That's reason enough to flee to Christ for refuge from these woes. Be reconciled to God today. Verse 17, The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Lebanon was pillaged for its cedars by the Babylonians. And it was plundered of its wild game by the Assyrians. All its glory was taken away and consumed by others. And here we see, I think, a clear overlap. Just as with the fruit of the Spirit, it's one fruit where you find love and humility. You also find patience and joy. They all overlap with any sin. Whenever you find any one sin in its own right, immorality, you also find other sins like violence, greed, This is the judgment of God for all who persist in the multifaceted sin of immorality. Your shame will be exposed. God will personally see to it that even as you delighted in the shame of others, your shame will be ever more increasing even unto the uttermost. Verse 18, woe to thee, idolatrous. Woe to the idolatrous. Verse 18, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. This woe, this fifth and final woe, is different because first, it doesn't begin with the word woe, whereas all the others did. And second, Honestly, to me, it doesn't sound as profound or as deep or as horrible as some of the other woes, at least at first glance. And it should signal to us, I think, that idolatry is different, or maybe that idolatry stands behind all the other types of evil and wickedness that the Lord pronounces woe against. The Lord begins with a question, a rhetorical one, what profit is it? And I think there's an implied connection between this woe against the idolater and chapter 2, verse 4, because of the word trust. Look at it. Chapter 2, verse 4, we spent a lot of time on this last week. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And then in verse 18, the idolater trusts in his idols. He trusts in his own creation. The word is different in Hebrew. They are slightly different ideas, but we'll see later that that doesn't mean that we shouldn't connect them. The righteous will live by his faith in the Lord. The wicked trusts or puts his confidence in idols, so they won't live. So the answer to the rhetorical question is clear. There is no prophet. 
If it's only the righteous who live by faith in God and trust and reliance and dependence on Him, then if you're putting your trust and reliance and dependence in anything else, you're not going to live. So clearly no prophet. That's the idea. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. There is no real description of what the woe precisely is, what it entails, like the rest of the woes. But the pattern, as we saw, is that the punishment fits the crime. Violence for violence, shame for shame, humiliation because of arrogance, it's all fitting. So what about idolatry? What is the woe against the idolater? Here's the idea, I think. This is what's happening. You have set your hope, your confidence in a speechless thing. Something that you yourself have have made. And then he says, can this teach? I think what he's saying is, do you get it? Do you get the point? If you rest your trust on things that you make by your own hands, then it's not going to work out for you. And before we lampoon the idolaters of ancient times, lest we forget the essence of idolatry is trusting in anything other than God, especially the work of your own hands. Have you ever considered, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that one of the reasons the Lord has allowed as much failure and frustration and futility as he has into your life is so that you would be spared from the devastation of trusting in the work of your own hands. Maybe the reason that we're not as successful as we would like to be is because the Lord knows the devastation of idolatry. And he is keeping you from trusting in the work of your own hands. Verse 20, But the Lord is in his holy temple, Let all the earth keep silence before him. The way this is connected to the woe against all those who are idolaters is that the Lord is there in his holy temple. He welcomes all who approach him in repentance and faith. And yet mankind prefers speechless idols. We we prefer the strength and the work of our own hands. It would be pure tragedy if it were not also purely appalling. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We know that Habakkuk was in the mind of Paul when he wrote the great letter to the Romans. And so maybe it was this text or or maybe this was one of them that was in his mind when he wrote this from Romans 3. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. It's also similar to what Job says after the Lord's first address. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Let the whole world keep silence before him. So in summary, God promises to punish his divine instrument for for judgment. The people are wicked. Why do you let this go on, Lord? Don't worry, I'm raising up the Babylonians to discipline and purify my people. How can you do that, Lord? They're more wicked than us. 
Yes, I know. Trust me in the process. I will punish them too. And then chapter 3, we have Habakkuk's response. He sees, or he, he comes to a place of repose where he understands God's work. Verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth. I think I'm saying it right. We're not sure what Shigionoth means other than it would be a really awesome middle name for a newborn baby. But we are sure that it is some kind of musical term. So it would be like saying in 4-4 in four, four timing or 6-4 timing or on the piano or something like that in their time, whatever the counterpart would be. Further, I think it's important for us to pay attention to these things because it is an expression of hope. You realize that Habakkuk has just seen the, the workings of the Lord that he will bring judgment on his people. All of Judah, even Jerusalem itself, will be swept away. So the temple is going to be destroyed. And yet here is Habakkuk writing a song for the people of God to sing together. He trusts the Lord. He, he is being obedient to Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous will live by faith. He trusts that the Lord will see the righteous, the righteous remnant through this. And eventually one day we will gather and sing and worship the Lord together. I want you to note this. This is very important. This is why we've gone through a book like this and why I don't just do cheap sermon series to make you feel better. Genuine heartfelt worship is on the far side of understanding how the Lord works. Do you get that? Do you see where this occurs in the book? It's at the end. He's brought to the point of worship Genuine, heartfelt worship after God has revealed to him all of this stuff, this weighty truth about how he works in the world. If what you care about is worshiping God and him receiving the glory due his name, then you will come into this room ready to work, ready to open your mind and receive even heavy, difficult truths about the Lord because we care about worship. We care about him receiving the glory that's due his name. Not an experience. The Lord drew near to Habakkuk to answer his complaint. And the Lord was even at work in Habakkuk's heart to stir him to bring the complaint in the first place. Remember, this is the burden that Habakkuk saw. So in some sense, the Lord is revealing all of this to him. And it's all in order that the Lord would work in the hearts of this small remnant of the faithful to have a deepened sense of love and adoration and trust in the Lord. Verse 2, the first half. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. I've noted all along the way a few parallels with Job, and here's another one. <clears throat> Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Can you say the same thing? Have you heard the report of the Lord and fear his work? 
I want you to expect that even as we learn of the outskirts of the ways of the Lord, as Job says, that you will need to come ready to think and worship the Lord with all your mind, with all your heart, with all your strength. The God that holds up the universe by the mere word of his power will not yield to cheap platitudes or bumper sticker Christianisms. I want you to go through, this is what I want for you, I want you to go through the same transformative experience that Habakkuk went through. I want you to come to this vestibule, this this precipice, to see God this way and to worship Him this way because He deserves it from you, because He saved you. He sees, hears of the Lord through this amazing and awful, in the true sense of the word awful, depiction of the majesty, justice, holiness, and power of God. His response is nothing but a beautiful song of praise when he sees him. How cheap is your praise and worship of God? If you cannot see or do not want to see or distract yourself enough so that you Lose focus with his powerful work. If you don't want to see his mighty deeds, how shallow is your worship of him if you cannot see and do not want to see his indomitable purposes throughout all of human history? Our worship runs the risk of putting God himself into a little box of our own making and us committing the same sin as the idolater. We have made God in our own image, He is the work of our hands when we put Him in that box and we worship that instead of the real Creator. The Scriptures will open you to see the God who is there. Not the God you want to see. He's not the God Habakkuk wanted to see. He wanted different answers. He didn't like God's answers at first. And God yet works with him and is patient with him and draws him out and brings him to the place where he can actually worship. That's the point. That's what God is doing. We must stand in awe of him and tremble at his word. Verse 2, the second half. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So there, there are three ends, if you will. In the midst of the years, in the midst of the years, in wrath. And the first two, I think, are essentially saying the same thing. They prepare us for the third. The first two are essentially prayers to the Lord that he will remember his promises to punish eventually the wicked. In the midst of the years, I think for him saying that twice indicates that he knew that it was going to be a very long time. And that he might not even live to see it. The third petition summarizes, I think, the posture that the prophet has towards all that the Lord has shown him. And I want to say this. Just, just look at it. In wrath, remember mercy. He's pleading with the Lord to show mercy. And I think the cry for mercy is the beginning of faith. The cry for mercy is the beginning of faith. Genuine faith. I know many people who claim to have a relationship with the Lord and they have yet never come to anything like the posture of the tax collector and crying out, be merciful to me, a sinner. Can't, what, what about you? Can you say with confidence, yes, 
I am a sinner and I am undone before the Lord. And your posture towards him is have mercy on me, a sinner. They, these people that haven't come to this point, and maybe you, dear friend, are confident that you have done what you needed to do to be right with God, and you have resolved in your heart to be a good person or to pray the right prayer or to believe the right things, but you have never come close to a posture of utter brokenness. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's so important because that man goes down to his house justified and not the other. Your salvation hangs in the balance. But I think this can be taken deeper. He says, in wrath, remember mercy. I think this statement could merit its own sermon or sermon series on itself. A couple of things. I'll try to make this very quick. This is a little bit of an excursus, but it is so important. As John says, mercy triumphs over judgment. God desires to show mercy more than he desires to show wrath. Why? Because he gets more glory in showing mercy than in showing wrath. Well, why is that? Because only through showing mercy does he gain the reverence and praise that he deserves on the basis of being Savior and Redeemer. And unfortunately, that idea that God prefers to show mercy more than wrath is an unacceptable idea to some people that are otherwise very solid who write books. It's just a blatant disregard for the logic of Paul in Romans 9. You can read about it, Romans 9, verses 22 and 23. God shows wrath in order to intensify his showing of mercy. And it becomes immediately clear when we begin to define his holiness. What, What makes God different? That's what holy means. It's not an attribute. It's a description of how different he is. He's different, different, different. And what makes him different is, in fact, his steadfast love, his covenant-keeping commitment to himself and to keep his word to his people. And I think this is proven by point number two. You would never say the opposite of this petition. Let's flip it around. So this is what Habakkuk prays, in wrath, remember mercy. What about in mercy, remember wrath? Even writing that down in my sermon notes made me feel uncomfortable just because of the utter sheer terror that that would imply if God were to ever behave that way. This is the, what the psalmist and the prophets rejoice in over and over that in the midst of mercy, there's no wrath. And that even in the midst of wrath, God will eventually show mercy. Psalm 30, verse 5, the first part, for his anger is but for a moment, but his favor or mercy is for a lifetime. And Psalm 103, 8 and 9, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Just switch that around. He will not always love, nor will he show mercy forever. That's not your God. That's Allah, who can do whatever he wants, and he doesn't give a rip about showing mercy or wrath. It's just all the same. It's all glory to him. God prefers mercy. The Lord is different. 
and his mercy, his steadfast love, is the main ground upon which he desires us to praise him. Otherwise, there'd be no reason for the cross. If he gets the same amount of glory from condemning and pouring out wrath and justice as he does mercy, then why send the Son to the cross? Verses 3 through 7. Praise God for his might. We'll go through these quickly. Even as we celebrate and treasure that the Lord God will not always chide, and that his anger is but for a moment, yet we must stand in awe that even a moment of his anger implies all that we're about to read. When God acts in wrath and anger, the whole earth trembles. This is talking about the Exodus, actually, I think, and I'll demonstrate that here in a second. But it also looks forward to a final day of judgment and a final redeeming of God's people. Notice that in the Exodus and in the last day, they are both not two different tracks of God showing mercy and wrath in different ways. It is that He is showing wrath against the wicked and shielding His people in mercy from it. It's wrath and mercy simultaneously. So in wrath, remember mercy. And he's recounting the exodus to essentially petition God to act the same way towards the people when Babylon comes. Verse 3, God came from Timnah, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Note, he is not coming from the temple. This is a recounting of him coming from the south, which likely what, which Timnah has a, a similar sounding word. And that's generally, best guess, the direction that the people of Israel would have been coming through the wilderness. And it's foretelling a time that the Lord will come from outside the land and come to conquer all that belongs to Him for the sake of His people. The second half of verse 3, His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of praise. That might be a reference to the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. The earth being filled with his praise may be an allusion to the sea and the winds and the rivers and the birds and all of creation obeying him. Verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. I think that's pretty clearly a reference to Sinai. The light and the flashing and the veiling of his power, it's, it's, it's very clear. And the question I have for you is, have you ever come to a place, a posture of your, in your heart towards the Lord like Moses had, that the author of Hebrews records? He says, I tremble with fear. Or better yet, have you come to grasp the glory of Zion? Verse 5, before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This is just, this is all, this this majesty, this devastation is the moment of the wrath of the Lord against his enemies. And we do well at this point, verse 5, to remember who is ultimately in charge of all of this. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. There is not one atom, not one particle, not one strand of partial DNA in a virus, nor a part of full DNA in any other being that is not under the sovereignty of God. Pestilence went before him and plague followed at his heels. These are the servants of the Lord. They went before him. The Lord sent pestilence to drive out the Canaanites from the land and they followed at his heels. It's a reference to all the plagues that he brought upon Egypt. (coughs) 
God, this is, this is how um, Moses recounts it. God led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock. Verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. This is kind of an all-encompassing statement. From Sinai to the driving out of the nations. The everlasting hills... I think it's just a beautiful imagery. In in Hebrew mindset, the the hills were part of the foundations of the earth. And so the concept of of them being there essentially from the dawn of time and and they're understood as to be eternal or everlasting and, and God proves himself to be the true everlasting ones because before him even the mountains quake. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. I think this is an echo of the song of Moses in Exodus 15. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are scattered They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. The Lord must be praised for his might. He does all of this, showing wrath against his enemies and bringing his people into their land. Verse 8, this begins the next section. You are mighty to save. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? I think these are rhetorical questions. And I think we should respond and take this as a no. God wasn't mad at the rivers. But if you were just reading through Exodus and didn't really understand theology, you might come away thinking, like, the Lord has something against the sea and the rivers because he's splitting them in half. And later we will see that there's a more metaphorical sense of the word sea. It actually stood for death for the Hebrew. Verse 9, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. God readies himself for war. Many times in the Old Testament, we see this image of the divine warrior readying himself for battle. God does that on behalf of his people. But what it means is the outpouring of his wrath, his indignation against all his enemies. When God acts in salvation, it is wrath and mercy simultaneously. And how you are towards Him, if you have faith in Him, means that it is one way or the other, wrath or mercy for you. Splitting the earth and the rivers might be a reference to the rock in the wilderness, providing water in the wilderness. It it might be similar to what Isaiah says, for Waters break forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Imagine just all this dust and rock around. There's no water. It's a very arid place. And then all of a sudden, out of some random rock comes water to water the people of Israel. It would have disrupted the whole ecosystem. The mountains saw you. Verse 10. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Nature itself cannot stand in the way of the Lord when he sets himself on the path of redemption. 
Understand, brothers and sisters, that the remaking of the world is going to happen because the Lord is committing, to, committing himself to saving us to the uttermost. That's why this world will be remade. That's why it all will be rolled up as a garment and burned with fire because he's making it ready for you to enter your inheritance. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. This might be a reference to the sun standing still so that Joshua could finish the battle from Joshua 10. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord, Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ahialon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. God halts even the orbits of the heavenly spheres for the sake of his people, but simultaneously in pouring out wrath on his enemies. Verses 12 and 13, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for salvation for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You see, again, that his anger, his wrath is being poured out for the sake of his people. And he will do so again for you. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows, the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. And and I think this is a very important verse because it shifts from reflecting on the Exodus to talking about something in the present tense or future even. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. Who is he talking about? He's shifting now from Egypt and the nations of the Canaanites to Babylon. But I think this also shows that his perspective is forward-looking in general. Faith is embodied in the word remember. The operative word of faith is remember. So as we consider the salvation of the Lord in times past in the Exodus, in the cross, then we can have confidence that God will bring salvation and deliverance in the future. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So now he shifts from the oppressor or the wicked or the nations to now this this inanimate object, and he closes this song of praise with praising God that he has defeated the sea. What could that mean? Again, in Hebrew thought, the sea was an image of death or chaos or evil itself. So this completes the victory of God. He is the victor over his enemies and death itself and sin. And that completes the trifecta of God's victory over his opponents. And notice that sin is defeated all through the second half of chapter 2. There's more detail and description of God defeating the wicked because that's the most difficult. God could defeat his enemies instantly and he could defeat death instantly. It's sin that takes a long time and the death of his son to defeat. Verse 16, first half. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. 
Friends, every mouth will be stopped. Consider Habakkuk's response in view of the coming of the day of the Lord. Is this you? Do you have this humility and holy fear before the Lord? There is, unfortunately, a proud and brazen, chest out, we are the good guys, and we are the ones who have it right, and we are the ones who do the right thing and think the right things, flavor of Christianity, and I want nothing to do with that in this church or in my life. Don't buy it. Brother and sister, does your Christian posture, does your, does your whole religion Toward God sound more like Habakkuk in this verse. I hear and my body trembles. My my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Or does it sound like the Pharisee? Thank you, God, that you have saved me and made me one of the good guys. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Second half of verse 16. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. This is so key, and I know we're running out of time, and I'm sorry. This is the litmus test to know if you're acting like the justified tax collector Or the Pharisee, like Habakkuk, or those who don't know the true justifying grace of God? Are you putting your hand over your mouth and waiting for the day of trouble, accepting it as discipline from the Lord? As the author of Hebrews says, endure hardship as discipline? Are you trusting with your hand over your mouth that the Lord will one day bring vengeance on his enemies? Or are you pointing fingers at Babylon, maybe upset that they are more wicked than us, or upset because they're infringing on your rights? Imagine if Habakkuk had thought that way. He would not have embraced this plan of God to purify his people. For those who do not listen and submit to God's discipline in this way, like Habakkuk did, It will be God's mercy to only intensify the discipline from Babylon until we put our hands over our mouths, consider our ways, and return to the Lord. Let the reader understand. Habakkuk trusts in God's sovereignty, including God's sovereignty over the nations and the rulers of this world. Sometimes I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we are really the ones who have gone mad. Because we act like, we can post whatever we want, but we act like that the world is lost and, and that God has no control. And that there really is no sovereign God sitting on the throne. And that this really isn't for our good. As the hymn says, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. 
I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Do you understand that is what God is doing in your life? Through Babylon! The worst that any government, from Babylon to Rome, from Washington, D.C. to Afghanistan, and yes, even California can do to you, dear brothers and sisters, is to refine you and prepare you for glory. He burns away the dross that is still within you and me to prepare us. And he does this, he burns away the dross, not mainly in the prayer closet or on the mountaintop or in the perfect quiet time, but by means of his divine instrument for judgment and discipline, whoever or whatever that may be. We'll go through this very quickly. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I don't want to go line by line through this, of course, for the sake of time, and because we ought not end on a down note, but note again the parallel to Job. He's essentially saying, even if all that happened to Job happens to me, And the amazing thing about this text is that Habakkuk has come to the point to realize that if this all happens, it's God's discipline to purify his people. It's not just some random happenstance. Yes, Lord, I'll trust you no matter what happens. Lord, if this is your will for me to purify me and to ready me for glory, it's okay. Yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. The very Lord who's bringing these things to pass. The very Lord who is raised up Babylon for these very purposes to take away the produce of the vine, to take away the harvest, to make all these things fail, to strip away all of their cattle. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. It's interesting that he doesn't say, I will have faith in God, alluding back to chapter 2, verse 4. I think this he's telling us, he's showing us what real faith in the Lord looks like. A willingness to rejoice in the Lord. A willingness to take joy in the God of my salvation. Is that what you mean by saying, I believe in God or I trust in Jesus? Do you rejoice in the Lord? Not in spite of your circumstances, but because of them. The Lord God is my strength. Verse 19. He makes my feet like the feet of the deers. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. This book ends with hope. This hope is expressed in three different ways. Number one, he himself is our strength. His name and his promise is the source of our confidence and our hope for tomorrow. Number two, he will save and establish and rescue his people by the strength that he supplies within them. He makes my feet like the deer's. He will give us the ability to see it through. He will give us the ability to endure to the end and escape from his wrath. And number three, he will prepare the people so that they may praise him together one day. To the choir master with stringed instruments like we saw at the beginning of this prayer. Habakkuk trusts that one day the Lord will regather all his people and they will worship him. And we can rest in his purposes until that day.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for a hard text, for lots of verses, and a book that is often neglected. Help us see how staggeringly relevant Habakkuk and his burden is to us. Give us grace that we may come to the same point of worship, that we may praise you with heartfelt and glad praise, even though you bring much discipline to purify us, to ready us for the new heavens and the new earth. May it be so for your namesake and the praise of your son, Jesus. Amen.